let me uh, let me sort of echo the sentiments from earlier today about uh, welcoming you here with us at Restoration Church this morning. If this is your uh, first time being with us, we're glad to have you. If you've been a long time uh, congregant, uh, partner, or member, we're, we're glad to have you. If this is your first time, we are equally glad to have you. We're thankful um, during these, you know, abnormal times to continue to be able to meet in some shape, way, form, or, uh, or manner here. And so I just want to uh, give you a hearty welcome and uh, thank you for being here with us this morning. Again, thank you for being flexible to uh, sometimes technological issues are out of our control, and that certainly is what happened this morning. But we, we do, as you can see, have a, a backup plan uh, to keep things consistent and moving. So thank you for sticking here with us, especially as uh, we talk about what we're going to talk about here in a couple of minutes, answering another significant question about suffering and how we understand God's, uh, God's role and work in the world when things seem very difficult. But before we do that, I really want to just mention two very important things to you. And these are always things that revolve around the life of our body. <clears throat> our church, while you know we, we gather, uh, at least we historically have gathered as, as a group of people on Sunday mornings and in community groups, uh, what we're seeing perhaps more than ever now is the, the events of the world that happen be, between Sunday to Sunday can often be uh, cataclysmic. I mean, one Sunday everything can be normal. Uh, the next Sunday, you can have a pandemic, and then a few Sundays after that, we can have uh, just an incredible cry for, uh, for justice in our world today because of all that has taken place around the country. And so I, I want to ask you, uh, last week we specifically prayed for this. I, uh, a couple of moments ago, I had asked Abe if he would pray for just the civil unrest and uh, for God's righteous hand to be upon everything that is going on, for justice to be served, where it is necessary for hearts to be calmed and loved and, and that we as a people could learn to sort of heal together. And so I, I really want to ask you to not let this just be something we pray during this time and then and then move on during the week. Let that be part of your prayer time each and every day until Jesus's perfect righteousness and justice uh, permeates the earth. There's an incredible amount of hurt going on in our world right now. And I just want to encourage you to um, to be part of the solution, to love and care for those uh, whom you might uh, know that are struggling or suffering. So pray, pray, pray. That's the first thing that I wanted to tell you. The second thing is just a matter of, uh, of clarification. And so our team, our leadership team, we, uh, we are in contact most of the time by weekly staff meetings regularly with uh, private communication back and forth. And I don't want you to think that we have sort of been unaware or blind to the fact that uh, you know, some churches have begun to meet again, some have not, some have no place to do it, some are no longer here anymore. There's a, the lay of the land regarding church life uh, post-corona has changed dramatically. And the thing that I wanted to mention today is that you, you probably heard, and I know some of you did because I've already communicated to you about this throughout the week, that on Friday, uh, our governor began what he called phase two of our reopening plan for the state of Florida, which includes movie theaters. Uh, at a 50% capacity. Uh, just in case this is your first time with us, we have been meeting at the Regal Movie Theaters in the Port Orange Pavilion for the better part of 10 years. That's been our home since uh, day one. And the thing that I want to clarify is that even though theaters are being permitted to open again, um, our theater, as well as many of the other, other major theaters, AMC is another great example, uh, they have no plans of opening right now. And that is simply because this is a, a business decision for them. Um, while they are permitted to open, they do not have any films to show because most of the production has stopped. And so I wanted to make sure you heard clearly from me that even though a movie theater might have the permission to open from the state, 
uh, whether or not they do that from their business side of things is completely out of our uh, control. And so we are um, aggressively, and we have been aggressively, looking for a way to come to some sort of solution either with the theater or, or possibly uh, figuring out other ways to meet because uh, like you, I am, I'm thankful for this time we've had like this and, and we'll have it as long as we need to. But I do want us to get back to the place where we uh, both safely and soundly uh, can, can gather again with, uh, within the guidelines of keeping us safe and certainly at a place that's open. So just because again, I'll, I'll sort of sandwich this idea just because theaters have been permitted to open, uh, the business reality right now is that most of them are not going to open until Hollywood begins to send them movies again to show. Uh, that's the, it's a business decision simply. They have nothing uh, to sell. So I will keep you posted as far as uh, our, our meanderings and happenings, things that we're looking at, uh, and sort of some of the clever ways that we are beginning to plan how to gather both socially and certainly get back to whatever the new norm is um, as far as our, our gathering goes, because I am, again, thankful for this technology, but uh, nothing replaces the sort of face-to-face -face contact that we have with each other in a community group or on a Sunday morning. That is something we are ardently striving, or striving towards uh, reinstalling. Re so please pray for the leadership of your church. There's a host of slew, uh, decisions in front of us. And uh, I also want to say one last thing here. We are alive and well. Restoration is actually thriving right now. I don't want you to think that we are going anywhere. Um, we are anchored and rooted in this community and doing our best to deal with what's going on right now. So pray, pray, pray for the unrest in our world. Pray, pray, pray for justice. Pray, pray, pray for the fact that there's still illness going around. And certainly pray, pray, pray that God would give us an immeasurable clarity on our next steps as a church as we continue to discuss this. If you have any questions about any of that, please feel free to reach out to us through the office. You know we are a hyper-transparent church, and we'd be glad to answer any questions we can for you about anything that uh, has been mentioned up to this point. Now, with that said, I want to uh, jump back into our teaching and our teaching over these past uh, past month, give or take a little bit, has been addressing the the topic of, of suffering, the reality of suffering. And we started by looking at a couple of examples of the Apostle Paul, who was able to sort of victoriously and, and confidently live during a challenging time, thrive in Christ during a challenging time. We looked at the words of Jesus in John 9 as he debunked some of the, the stereotypical realities often assigned to why people suffer. Uh, John 9, a couple of sermons on that. And then we made this transition over these past weeks to looking at very critical or we might even say very common questions that people have about suffering. So on the tail end of this series, not, not that the beginning was not practical, but on the tail end of this series, what we really wanted to make sure you all had was, was a bit of an answer to be able to address this type of a subject. It's not one that is popular to discuss. But it certainly is one that over the past three months in this country, we've seen an incredible amount of suffering and hardship um, has been the norm here for the past few months. And this is why it's all the more important that we as people who love Jesus are equipped to be able to uh, comfort the heart and the soul of men and women who might be hurting. And so this week, we're going to answer uh, a, a question. I want to pose a question to you that is often asked, uh, and I want to begin to address it. Today I want to ask a, a simple question. It is this. Why do some people feel like walking away from God will help them to deal with hard times? I'll say that one more time. Why do some people feel like walking away from God 
will help them to deal with hard times. And this is sort of the end of what we've been studying because we've looked at suffering from just about every angle we could as far as how Jesus explains it, as far as how Paul endures it. But this question here is one that I think is particularly important, especially if you are considering what it means to follow Christ or if you are actually following Christ. Because one of the common realities with people who go through hardship and suffering is that it often becomes, um, I don't want to say an excuse, but, but it can be used as the thing that turns them away from God. In other words, they are faced with a difficult circumstance in life, and rather than resting in Jesus or pressing into him uh, to, to know and grow in his grace and his faith and to trust and believe his promises more deeply, what ends up happening is a, a very common response from some Christian people when things get difficult is to just walk away from God. And that is likely because, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, there is an assumed blame that the circumstances in their life have been brought about by God. And that's what Jesus addresses in John chapter 9. Not all of those circumstances uh, in John 9 were like God being angry with people and sort of torturing them. He, he lets them know that there's a different cause for why this blind man was born blind and why he was suffering and how God could redeem that. And so the, the premise of what I want to do this morning is to point out why this is really an unwise decision, why it is sort of spiritually out of sorts, and it is what I would like to call a form of, of Christian atheism. It's sort of like walking away from God at the times when he promises to be most clear with us, most present with us. It is like its own brand of Christian atheism. It's something we use to to actually turn from God and, and maybe not press into the greater truths or reality he has for our lives. And so I simply want to make one statement today, uh, and the way we answer this question, and then we'll unpack it for the rest of our time, that abandoning faith in God doesn't help anything when you suffer. Let me say that again. Uh, if you think about all the things and the ways you can respond when you are going through hardship, uh, while abandoning God or turning away from him or getting angry at him can be one of the things you do, Abandoning faith in God doesn't help anything when you suffer. It absolutely makes no positive contribution to the relationship that we have with him and, and even sort of some of the promises that he has given us to hold on to. We sort of walk away from them. And to, to talk about this, I'm going to do, or at least use the same form that I did last week. We're going to look at a, a, a quote, a, a baseline for our teaching today, and then we're going to unpack the quote. And this is a quote if you've been with us at Restoration for any amount of time. This is probably the fifth time in 10 years that I have quoted a, a very famous atheist. I have shared with you all regularly when we have been physically together that um, there are four atheists in the world, one who has passed away recently, uh, that, that I really respect. I don't agree with them, but I, I respect them for their consistency in the way that they believe. And one of them is a guy named Richard Dawkins, and he's written an incredible amount of stuff about why he thinks the idea of God is, is nonsense. And so what I want to try to do today is show how abandoning our God, or at least walking away from him when things do get difficult, is really no different than, than, than the belief of atheism. And we want to explain why this is problematic. And so Richard Dawkins, famous atheist and an author of a best-selling book called The God Delusion, which essentially talks about uh, some of the main reasoning of why he thinks the probability of there being a God like the one we talk about in the scripture is, is pretty much zero. Uh, he says this about, about why things happen in our world. And I want you to think about this statement in light of everything we've seen in the past three months, in the light of the physical suffering 
we've seen, um, the racial tension we've seen, the, the hurt, physical, spiritual, and emotional going on in the world. I want you to think about all of the turmoil that we have seen and are seeing as people in light of this statement, how, how he attempts to explain uh, or the, the causes, if you will, for, for the things that go on in our world, particularly the suffering. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces, and genetic replication, he's leaning very hard on the sciences here. He says some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe, we observe, has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. He goes on to say... Really, the world that we live in is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA, of which we are comprised, neither knows nor cares. In other words, it's, it's like amoral. It doesn't have an opinion on anything. It just is. And he says, we dance to his tune. We dance to his music. Now, I want to read this again to you. This would have been below us um, if we had our proper technology working. But because we do not, I want, to, I want to read that again. It's a short quote, but one that certainly requires a little bit of thinking. And it is the springboard we'll use to discuss this idea this morning about why walking away from God during difficult times is, is not the best of decisions. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good, nothing but blind pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Now this common belief, and it is common, uh, doesn't necessarily make an, an awful lot of sense, and I want to put this in some practical uh, ways for you. So let's just say that I had the opportunity uh, to have Richard Dawkins here and we were talking about this book. This is a quote from his book, The God Delusion. And let's just say that uh, we were talking about an incident that happened as he was releasing this book or some of his other books. What if he wrote this book and then his publishers took this book and they produced this book and began to distribute it to the world and it began to sell and then the book began to earn funds and then when it was time to receive income or pay for the time and the effort that was put into writing this book, which takes an awful lot of mental energy, what if the publisher said, hey, we have just decided that we're not, um, not going to pay you. We, we really are glad to have worked with you. We're thankful that you gave us this. But we, we really feel like we're just going to keep all the funds from this, and you're just going to have to deal with that. If we're to think about this sort of this reality this way, we would almost all of us say immediately, well, that would be, that would be in, incredibly wrong. That would be like unjust. Uh, why would somebody put all that work into something, be promised remuneration, and then, and then not get it? Something is a little bit off about that. Look at the situations going on in our world today, um, especially when we look at the, the killing of George Floyd. The biggest thing you are hearing in every city across America is this plea for, for justice. They want intervention for something that, that, that is wrong to be made right. And I'm sharing with you an example of, it's a theoretical example, but nonetheless, this is something wrong. This person worked hard and should have earned an income because of what he did, but was not given it. To be consistent in this type of worldview, it would be interesting. Uh, according to the quote we just read, or this idea that sort of 
you know, we're all a cosmic happenstance and the world is nothing but uh, luck and pitiless indifference. What ends up happening here is we, we would sort of have to say like a lot of the hardship in our world, uh, the corrupt actions we see, even in this case, uh, his, his publisher is not treating him well. Well, this was just a direct byproduct of them dancing to the tune of their DNA. In other words, the, the point here is, is if, we, if we live as if there is no cause behind, purpose, uh, behind our lives, if we as people believe there is no God, if there is nothing but sort of random luck, coincidence, bad happenings, the, the bigger question that is not addressed in a teaching like this or a quote like this is, how does anyone truly determine whether anything is right or wrong? If we just dance to the tune of DNA, which steps all over us when it decides to, how can we as a people have any type of a worldview where there is objectivity in what we believe is true, where there is objectivity in what we believe is, is right? where there is objectivity in what we believe is, is, is justice. In this worldview, this sort of walking away from God as a believer or just really not looking to him at all, in this worldview, things like violence and suffering, they're not only common, but they're, they're perceived to be perfectly natural because we live in a world where we're sort of on our own and we're instructed that the way we deal with it is to, is to just deal with it. And this is the hard reality of, of the morality of statements like this. There's no real way to concretely decipher what is right or what is wrong. There's no real way to objectively figure out, I'd like to say, what a, what a true north is. And when you take this to its logical end, because remember, I say this all the time, every philosophy, every white tower academic philosophy that begins in a classroom at some point, 20 to 30 years later, it hits what we call the street, meaning at some point it's discussed by the academics, but eventually that stuff seeps into culture and we begin to live our life by it. And this is one of the common beliefs that people have. It's one of the worldviews we might say they have on how they look at suffering. And if it's taken to its logical end, if we really consistently believe a statement like this, that we just dance to the tune of our DNA, this worldview begins to rob us of the, the life and the ultimate value that we have been given uh, prescribed by God. It really can cheapen our suffering and in the end, even our death. I'm not denying DNA. I'm not denying science. You know, we talk about this quite a bit. I'm just saying, if that's it, then we've, we've got an issue. We really are just a sort of complicated compound of, of matter that we have just decided to call life. And the deep loss and grief that is often connected to the loss of a loved one, or, you know, when we have a, a child or we see somebody we love, for example, as of late, lots of students are graduating high school, we have these emotive connections to these things. When we lose a loved one, there's often deep loss and, and hurt in our hearts because of that. But according to this belief, these, these emotions, while they might be real, they're just pretty much irrational because death is part of our DNA. It's just one of the things we dance to. Everybody dances to the tune of death at some point, and therefore it's just natural that we would embrace it as, I don't want to say okay, but it just is what it is. And any of you that have lost a loved one, which is likely everybody listening to this right now, um, we know that when you lose a loved one, it's, it's not okay. And even though time might mend that, that hurt of losing a loved one, it never fully heals the loss of that loved one. That's on a totally side note here. That's one of the things that is most beautiful about the concept of the biblical concept and truth of heaven. Uh, you know, heaven for years has been talked about as like some playground where we get to have everything we want. But the, the, the reality of heaven is probably the best example 
of what it means to have genuine and long-lasting community. God knows our hearts long to be in deep and meaningful relationship. And so when we leave this earth, the promise of Jesus is that we will be with him and each other for forever. God knows that the loss of loved ones on this earth is not plan A. That's not the way it was meant to be. And he's made this way for those who are in Jesus to, to be together forever. There is something far more valuable about thinking about life this way than just simply seeing life as, uh, as us being in tow to the, the cosmic and random happenstance of what goes on around us. And so you see, if there is no objectivity in this, if, if there is no God who can look upon the world and, and truly give us a clarity in what is right and wrong, if there is no such thing as objective truth, like, like a rudder that is right no matter what goes on around us, then we can have feelings about what is right and wrong. We can have feelings about what genuine suffering is in this life. Um, we, we can even decide what we think is just or unjust. But the truth is that these things are just contextualized feelings. They are opinions, meaning it's hard to say that this truth applies for all of, of humanity if we all have the ability to determine how we dance to the tune of our DNA. How do you make exceptions to this view? How do you address inconvenient issues like the ones we're seeing in our world today? How do we deal with problems that are, are not politically uh, correct? How do we have a rudder of truth in a world that sort of is like a boat rocking in the ocean? It's never stable or anchored to anything. I'll give you another example of this. Let's say we apply this sort of DNA pitiless indifference idea to, uh, to another reality we've seen over the past decade. Let's just say, uh, and we've literally seen this on the news, let's just say somebody was uh, kidnapped overseas by a terrorist organization, something like an ISIS. And imagine if that person who is, you know, their life is taken from them, they are kidnapped, they are ransomed, they are tortured, sometimes they're even killed. Imagine if we just viewed that situation, if we responded to a situation like that by saying, uh, uh, you know, those men, they were just clearly acting out of, uh, of pure evil. They, they're just simply hurting you because they are dancing uh, to the natural tune of their DNA. That's just, that's just one of the ways we as humans can dance to our DNA. To the sane mind, when we look at things that are wrong or unjust in our world, when we hear about people being hurt, when we hear about you know, maybe criminal activity that has really hurt the life of somebody, to the same mind, an answer like that does not make sense. It is very, very wrong. And the question I pose to you is, why, why is it very, very wrong? Why do we not sort of logically look at life as us just being in tow to, to DNA, doing what it does? Why is believing this way wrong? Well, simply put, because it is. And this is why, if you look at uh, suffering in the world, there's often a suspicious silence at times. Uh, and there have been a handful of people today, particularly uh, a gentleman named Sam Harris, who I'm a very big fan of, who has attempted to address uh, morality from the angle of, of there being no God. It's sort of interesting, though, that you don't really hear a lot of, a lot of contribution when it comes to sort of moral objectivity from the atheist movements in times in our culture where, where things are rough or difficult. Uh, that is because, I mean, honestly, what we just said is a bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of a hopeless perspective on life. Nobody in pain would want to hear that that's just happening because that just happens. And if you are a Christian, here's where I want to build the bridge here. If you are a Christian who, who walks away from God during hard times, it's sort of like embracing the same hopeless fate. Here we have, hopefully anyways, we have both a, a mental knowledge 
and, and emotional knowledge, a, a, a experiential knowledge, a physical knowledge, a, a spiritual knowledge of the fact that God recognizes uh, he does see indifference and he does see things that are unjust. And we have been made in his image. And therefore, the reason our heart cries out or laments when we see things that are wrong in our culture is because that is part of the thumbprint of the existence of God in, in the whole of humanity. And so, so, you see, suffering, if we just abandon our belief in God, the, the most clear reason why we shouldn't do this is because when we go through suffering, there, there is no tangible benefit. If you have one, I'd like to know what it is. What, what does it benefit us as people who claim to love a God who wants to comfort us during times of difficulty, show us truth, help us to enact righteousness and justice? What good does it do us to walk away from him? At best, it can, uh, it, it can maybe cause us to say, like, what is good? What can come out of this hardship in life? And we talked about this last week. Uh, the beauty of this is that a lot of good can come out of hardship. And don't hear me conflating that hardship is always good. Some of the things we've seen happening in our world as of late are not good. But good things can come out of those situations if, for example, we begin to look at some of the systems in our culture. There's a lot of talk now about policing. There is a good conversation arising out of a very bad situation. I don't want you to hear me conflating uh, situations. Bad things can have redemptive value, especially in the kingdom of God. But for us to be even able to identify bad things, my point in what I'm saying today is we... We sort of have to have some form of objectivity to look at something and say it is bad. And the reason this is, is because generally speaking, we are all moral beings. Most of us, while it's not perfect, most of us have a sense of what is right and wrong in this world. And if you really are struggling with the question, how could a good God allow suffering at the moment when you are actually suffering, what happens is all that academic atheism we just talked about a minute ago, it, it winds up going out of the window. Most of the time, suffering, when we are really enduring it, it does not challenge our minds. It challenges our hearts. We, we cannot reconcile while, why we expected life to look like A, but life really looks like B. And the challenge is that our, our hearts cannot marry these two situations together. And the reason why this tension exists, the reason why we, we can sort of prescribe to the fact that there is truly good and evil in this world, is because we have been created in the image of God. This is something I'm going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to shift gears here in a couple of weeks and begin to talk about the significance of identity in Christ because I think it's a very apropos uh, subject, for, especially in light of what's going around, uh, going on in our world today. But this week and next week, we'll wrap up this idea of, of suffering. But I want you to hear what I'm saying here because it's, it's integral to where we're going. You and I have been created in the image of a God who values life. A God who values not just life in general, but your life in particular. And that is why you feel this way when you see other lives suffering or hurting. That is why we struggle with the question. It's not the tune of DNA in us, although we are all comprised of DNA. It's not that we're dancing to that tune. What I would say is we are listening to the, to the song of a Savior. And maybe we don't even know that it's the voice of Jesus. But there is something in us that drives us to say there is more to the world than just the material matter we live in. There has to be. And this is why walking away from God during difficult times doesn't really make any sense. Yet it, is, it happens all the time. 
Maybe this has tempted you in the past because of a less cognitive uh, set of reasons and a more emotional set of reasons. Remember, if you're wired sort of cognitively, then you will likely be challenged in your brain when you are suffering. If you are a person who leads more with their emotions, it will likely be your emotions that are challenged in the midst of suffering. So let me give you some examples of, of emotive suffering. Uh, maybe places where we can be tempted to walk away from God. Like questions like this, why doesn't God provide the financial support my family uh, so desperately needs? I, I heard on the news the other day that there's still a substantial, I mean capital S substantial amount of people that applied for unemployment because they lost their jobs during the COVID crises that still have yet to be approved, to have their applications approved. It can be very common in a moment like that to question why the, the basic needs of my life are not being met. When I've lost a job, I can't provide for my family, I can't feed them. Or why has God allowed my, my marriage to grow so cold? Why, why did I say I do at the altar with passion and now 20 years later or 10 years later or 5 years later, whatever, why, why are things so cold? Why do we see injustice in our world? We're highlighting an awful lot of it right now in our current society. Why is God allowing my child you know, to rebel? I, I read them the Bible every single night of their, their lives, and, and they grew up to be people who have rebelled against God. Or maybe you're saying, why do I suffer from a chronic illness? Right? The questions could likely go on forever. There's no shortage of questions that can be brought up when we talk about reasons that might cause us to, to question not only the existence of God, but what is perhaps more the existence of a good God. This is what we have to think about. However, no matter how deeply we feel the sting of suffering, and nobody escapes this life without feeling the sting of suffering, we have to be careful to not use it as a justification to run from God. And that's really the main point I want to drive home today. We should at least consider some things before we, we scapegoat God and, and, and turn away from Him. We should at least consider, like what we discussed last week, that some of the suffering that we're dealing with, some of the challenges in our life, they really could be the byproduct of our choices. Like we said last week, there, there really can be, unlike John 9, where the disciples think that this man was born blind because he or his father sinned, Jesus says, no, that's not the case. There is no direct cause and effect here. It was sort of sin in general. It was the fallenness of humanity, the, the elements of the body, that, that created this illness in this person. Sometimes there can, though, be a direct cause and effect. And I used an example last week, like when I said, you know, if we, uh, we know today scientifically if you smoke cigarettes your whole life, it's, it's very likely that you might develop some form of, of breathing issues later on in life. Direct cause and effect. Sometimes our struggles can be that way. And even if it's not that way, I also said this last week, there may be reasons that, uh, for things going on in our lives that we don't clearly see yet. We used the analogy last week of some, some suffering is, uh, is like a St. Bernard. It's, it's like massive, and we know exactly why it's going on in our life. And some suffering is like a noceum. This was Alvin Plantinga's idea. You know, we get the bite in our leg, and it's itching, but we don't exactly know what, what causes it. Some suffering, we have no idea why it happens. Some suffering, we have very clear ideas of why it happens. Some suffering, no doubt, is caused by human choices, and some by the general nature of sin. We spoke about this at length, so if you did not hear those teachings and are interested in this idea, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them. Because these truly are the foundational reasons why people often walk away from God. There's a, a misconstrued idea about how God is or isn't working, a set of expectations about how God is or isn't working in their lives during these moments. And I just want to say that it really doesn't make any sense 
to walk away from the one who promises not only to redeem the pain that we often experience in our lives, but uh, he promises to walk through these, these painful areas of our life with us. I want to say something very important about what I just said. So please, please listen to this. I have one more idea I want to mention to you this morning, but I, I don't want you to miss what I'm about to say right now. Over these past five weeks, I have attempted to give us sound biblical reasoning and practical application for why, um, why suffering exists in the world and how we can deal with it. And I want you to know that anytime I speak on a topic, especially like this suffering, I am absolutely 100% confident of the fact that there are no amount of words, there is no amount of clarification, there is no amount of explanation that I can offer you on, on, on this idea that will satisfy your every emotional need to be okay with and to fully deal with suffering. And that's not because I have not studied this, that's not because there are not great men and women who have written about this, it's simply because we are not meant, we're not designed to be fully okay with suffering. We were not built to be that way. We were built, built to be in perfection and a perfect relationship with God. And so what I want you to know is that there is, no, there is no slam dunk answer. Even though we're looking at some of the fallacies of atheism, there's no sort of like, oh, it makes perfect sense now and my heart doesn't hurt anymore. That's just not the reality of suffering. No answer can fully satisfy the pain our hearts deal when we, with when we suffer. Only Jesus' goodness and grace can do that. No words can fully satisfy the innate struggle we so often have when, when we are seeing or experiencing suffering. Now that said, while scripture may not answer every single question we have about suffering, we should consider this one thing about suffering. The one thing scripture is explicitly clear about when the innate struggle is, is taking our lives over, when it begins to fuel doubt or rage or anger, when it comes to how God wants us to deal with our suffering. This is perhaps the most practical thing I can offer you in everything we've said. Throughout the scripture, God has made it very clear that he offers us himself to deal with suffering. So all of the things that we have talked about, the way I want to end this section of teaching is saying this. Scripture is explicitly clear that God cares for you, is with you, and understands your suffering when you go through it. He's not just sitting up in heaven observing life, hoping it works out for us. One of the great promises, and this is promised many times in both Testaments, is that God not only looks at us when we suffer, but he laments with us. His Holy Spirit indwells us and helps us to endure this. Scripture is explicitly clear. God cares for you and I, he is with you and I, and he understands our suffering when we go through it. Listen to how Isaiah 43.2 describes this. When you pass through the waters, this is God speaking to his people, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the river, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. One great example of God promising to be with his people. We know in the New Testament, Jesus promises to never leave or forsake us. He tells us in multiple places that he's endured every trial humanity could deal with so that when we came across that trial, he couldn't just talk about it to us. We couldn't just read about these things in the scripture. We could actually know that we love a God who endured those trials so he could identify with us through them. And notice the promise in, in both of these ideas, especially in Isaiah. The promise is not that if we believe we're not going to go through deep waters or, or fiery trials. 
for both believer and non-believer. Nobody escapes trials and suffering. We've said this many times. This is a given. It is part of what it means to be human. One of the realities of life is in a fallen world, we are going to struggle. Things will be difficult. We will be on the mountaintop in some seasons of life and in the valley during other seasons of life. And the beauty of what we've been discussing is that God's promise to his people is that no matter where we are, valley or mountaintop, he is going to be with us. And so how is it that we know that this is a, a true promise? Here's how I want to wrap up this morning. How, how can I sit here and explain to you or confirm that rather than walking away from God, we should root ourselves in his promises? How can we believe that God is good and is going to keep his word to us when we endure affliction? Well, the most obvious way that this can be shown is in the promise and the actions of Jesus in the New Testament. We're reminded of this every Easter. The, the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest evidence that we have in the world that God is a God who keeps his promises. That from the very first time humanity stepped away from God, he had a plan of redemption in order to be able to bring us back to him wholly, to help us through our struggles and our suffering. And so Jesus, God himself, becomes vulnerable and subjects himself to the same suffering, to the same pain, and even the same death we all deal with. Every one of us will die one day. We don't only speak to a God or know a God or are loved by a God who gives us writings about death in the Bible. We are a God, uh, we, we worship a God who is aware of the fact that death is uncomfortable for most of us. So therefore he endures death on our behalf so that we can have life. He even dies on a cross so he can say, yes, in death I go before you. We can believe the promises of God. We can have hope in these promises. We can believe there is purpose in anything going on in our life because God has already walked that road for us. That's what the Bible is. It's a, it's a, sto a, a book of stories packed with the ways God has already worked in our lives and is working in the lives of his people. And so we want to be in the presence of God when we struggle. God doesn't just know about suffering. He has endured it himself so he can identify be empathetic with us and help us to overcome. That is why with the right perspective, right perspective doesn't mean we're going to be okay with suffering, but the right perspective, uh, understanding suffering like this, trial and difficulties, what happens is, is we, we don't have to be okay with them. We shouldn't be. But we can become something and someone who no longer fears them or bows to them. Like what Paul says about death, he says, listen, death is still death. But it's lost its sting because those who are in Jesus now will live forever. He's not saying like Jesus takes death away. He's just saying the sting no longer hurts because if you look to him at his cross, you will live forever. That's what the Bible is filled with. It's packed with promises of not that there won't be any fire, but that when we see the fire, God will take our hand and walk us through it. These things begin to have purpose. They become something God uses to restore our hope in him. Our struggles are no longer seen as random dances to the tune of DNA or in the biblical examples we shared, the direct cause and effect of God's displeasure with us. That can certainly be the case at some times, but Jesus in John 9 shows us we need to be very careful of not always assuming that's the, the case. Rather, what we know concretely is that when we suffer, God desires to bathe us in his love. God desires for us to really recognize that uh, we are his children and that he will valley or mountaintop, never leave or forsake us. And that's why walking away from God during trial is not a good option. There's a, a beautiful biblical analogy that I kind of want to share with you here this morning and how we end. It describes the truth about what we're talking about today. It's called the refiner's fire. 
And in the old world, it's, it's, uh, even today we can see how people refine precious metals. What, we, what they do is a person takes uh, like gold, and when it's impure, they actually put it into a fire to remove, to remove the impurities. It's called smelting, and they, they start beating this metal with all kinds of, of, of tools to be able to take the impurities out of it. And I would imagine if you knew nothing about metal smithing and you actually saw somebody uh, banging on metal on this metal it would look like taking a piece of precious gold and sticking it in a, in a fire would be the worst thing you could do to that thing it would look like torture but to the person who knows how to work with metal they know that this refining fire is actually making the metal stronger because the metal is precious to the owner that's actually an act of care so the reason we can believe that god is good to us even when life is hard we can believe that God is good to us even when there is suffering going on in our lives is because one of the ways God redeems our suffering is by is through the refiner's fire. It's a literal analogy used in the Old Testament. The way God can work in our lives really does show us some pretty powerful things. And I don't ever want us to think that when we endure hardship that God is in a malice way trying to teach us something. God is always and always trying to refine us. He is trying to help his good to be realized in our lives and, and his good to be spread in the world. And so as we close my prayer over this last month is that this teaching has brought some more meaningful understanding to you about why we need to think deeply about what suffering is and isn't. And how God wants us to know that, that through suffering we need not look anyplace else for joy or hope or peace. My prayer is really that as we look at a, a nation right now that is suffering and people that are hurting, that we would ask ourselves, first and foremost, how do we understand suffering in our own lives? And then, really, what will we do about it when we see it in our world? Because if you think about this, God offers himself to us as we suffer, so that we can be the types of people who offer ourselves to others to alleviate their suffering as they deal with it. We are a conduit for, for that comfort and peace, not just a receptacle to store it up. And so this week I ask you, when it comes to suffering, what is it Jesus is saying to you? And what is it you will do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for these truths about suffering. And again, for the beauty of what it means to, uh, to know a God who foreknows everything and has promised to be with us through the fire. We thank you, God, for the goodness of your son. And we pray, Lord, that no matter where we are as your people, we would deeply experience it in all ways and in all methods and matters of our life right now. In Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.